In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. May His blessings and mercy dwell upon us from now and forevermore. Amen. Well, this is the last of the uh, nine-week series, and tonight we've got two virtues that we will cover and conclude with. <clears throat> the first virtue is meekness. Meekness. And the second virtue that we'll discuss tonight is discernment, the virtue of discernment. Two very important virtues for any Christian person who wants to reach the life of uh, Christian perfection, um, to, uh, to live by and to learn. First of all, meekness. And as you know, that meekness, as mentioned by St. Paul the Apostle, is actually one of the fruit of the Spirit. So we are all called to live by this virtue of meekness. And we have a beautiful example in our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, he teaches us meekness by saying to us, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beautiful words that we can have the Lord as our example for meekness. Humility, being lowly in heart and being gentle. So how can we imitate the meekness of our Lord Jesus Christ then? Let us see what the Bible says about his conduct, and that in itself will teach us about uh, his meekness. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet prophesied in times of old about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said about the Lord, he said, He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. This is how Isaiah the prophet described the Lord prophetically in days of old. And this picture that we have now of our Lord is somebody who's very quiet spoken, somebody who has a, a low voice, somebody who is peaceful in dealing with others, somebody whose voice is not heard. So he doesn't raise his voice. In other words, someone who has a subdued anger. He does not show any anger whatsoever. And we see this very clearly in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ here on earth. Even in the most difficult times, he would not rebuke in anger, he would not uh, raise his voice, and he would not show any signs of anger at all. Furthermore, we are exhorted by St. Paul the Apostle in his epistle to the Romans, and he says to us, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So this whole concept of anger then needs to be treated by us as Christians. Because anger has become a, a, a real serious problem in our society. It's a problem for all ages. We find little children who are, you know, very angry and outrageous in their anger. You know, we have things like road rage, we have things like uh, flight rage. Um, sometimes even without any cause, you know, and you wonder why people are so uh, angry on the inside. Even things like movies or TV shows or even computer games and even cartoons to some extent might have things like uh, violence in them which causes the person to become angry. And it's no wonder that anger management um, courses and those sort of things have become very, um, very big and a great business at that. So let's have a look then at what degrees of meekness there is in light of what the Desert Fathers teaches. And these uh, degrees uh, of meekness 
the Lord actually uh, spoke about in one of the most beautiful parables that we have in Scripture, and that is the parable of the sower. If you have been uh, at church for the last couple of Sundays, actually this is what the Gospel of Sundays, the last two Sundays, has been about, the parable of the sower. When he says, But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So there are degrees of meekness that we need to actually uh, learn and live by. The first degree of meekness is not to repay evil with evil. This is the lowest form of meekness, or the lowest degree of meekness. And St. Paul urges us, and he says, Repay no evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil. And this is the first degree. And also St. Peter tells us in his epistle, he says, Not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And again, our Lord is the person perfect example of this, who it has been said about him by St. Peter in his epistle, he says, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So this is the first degree of meekness, not to repay evil with evil. The second degree of meekness is to actually accept the insult without losing your internal peace. Now it's a little bit harder, okay? I can withhold from repaying evil for evil, but now to accept the insult without losing my inner calmness and inner peacefulness is a little bit more difficult. For some people can actually refrain from repaying evil for evil, but on the inside they might be boiling with anger and are ready to take revenge or they have at least a desire for revenge, the thoughts of anger might perplex them, and so forth. And these people, um, by doing that, have fallen short of that second degree of meekness. And we have examples among the Desert Fathers to illustrate this second degree of meekness, and that it is possible. There is a beautiful story about St. John Colopus, or St. John the Short. He was very famous in his time to the extent that many people came to hear him. But another monk was very envious of his fame. And he told him in the presence of all those who gathered around him, he said, John, you are like a whore exhibiting her body in front of others. He rebuked St. John Colopus to that extent. But St. John in his meekness replied and said something very nice. He said, brother, you see my outside and say this about me, what would you say if you saw my inside? Imagine, he said, you're judging right, you're judging rightly, you've seen me on the outside and you've seen this, imagine if you saw my wickedness and my sins and my shortcomings on the inside, how much more would you say uh, about me? So he said this without being agitated whatsoever on the inside, he accepted the insult and then when the monks asked him, he said, were you moved on the inside? He said, not at all, for I deserve this. In meekness and humility and in loneliness, he felt that he was deserving of this. There's also another beautiful story that shows us how this meekness um, was achieved by the Desert Fathers. The story goes by uh, telling us that some monks from Syria, hearing about the fame of the Egyptian uh, monks in the desert, came to the Egyptian monasteries to see how these monks conducted themselves. 
and it was the custom of the Egyptian monks to eat early whenever they had visitors come to them in order not to enforce their ascetic rites on the visitors that came. For example, we hear about the beautiful story of uh, one of the elders who um, had some visitors, so he asked his disciple to set for them a meal. And they actually ate uh, of the meal with them because of hospitality. And as the custom was that the monks would go out in the evening and walk in the desert, and then his disciple became thirsty after they had eaten of the meal with their uh, guests, and he went to drink, and the elder rebuked him. He said, what happened to our fasting? What happened to our abstinence? He said, but we just ate a meal with our guests. He said, this was for the sake of hospitality, but this does not break our canon in terms of abstaining and of um, you know, keeping uh, our fast. So it was the, the custom that whenever they had visitors, they would break uh, their fast early for the sake of the uh, visitors. So when the table was set and the Syrian monks sat with the, um, with the Egyptian monks, the Syrian monks started to think in their mind that these Egyptian monks are quite lax. They break their fast at 9, which is equivalent of 3 o'clock in the afternoon, whereas they, uh, in Syria, they keep the fast till much later, till sunset at least. But the abbot, through the spirit, knew what the other Syrian monks were thinking. And it, the story goes on to show that there was an old monk who was giving out bread to those who were eating. And when this old monk came to give the bread to the abbot, the abbot raised his hand and slapped him across the face, quite harshly. But this old monk continued to give out the bread without any change in his outer appearance of calmness and peacefulness. And the Syrian monks realized that they are lacking something that they have come and found in the Egyptian monks. And they said to the abbot, they prostrated themselves before the abbot, and they said to him, Forgive us, Abba, for we can persevere without food longer, but we cannot control our passions the way you do. So again, the second degree of uh, meekness is actually to accept the insult without losing your inner peace. There is even a third degree, which is so much more harder to achieve. The third degree of meekness is the person who is insulted, that they feel grieved that they have caused a brother or a sister to sin against them. Imagine that. So, for example, that um, you know um, somebody rebukes you or insults you, and you become grieved within your heart that you have caused this person to sin against you. Imagine <laughs> what sort of degree that is. Well, let's have a look at the training of meekness in the light of the Desert Fathers and um, what they can teach us. Again, like we've uh, expressed many times, that we need to have uh, a clear guidance from our Confession Fathers and we need to turn to prayer first and foremost in order to learn meekness. And I need to ask the Lord directly and to say, Lord, teach me to be meek like you. I need to tell him and say, Lord, you have said, learn from me for I am meek. Teach me this meekness that I can find rest unto my soul as you have promised. So resorting to prayer and guidance from my confession, Father, the next step would be to reason within our souls and to think of it in this way, to say that peace is a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a precious gift at that, because he said to us, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. So every time I give in to anger, I am actually losing my peace. I'm losing the precious gift 
that Christ has handed to me, that he gave to me personally. And imagine if I take this gift from Christ and throw it away. I'll be refusing this precious gift. Imagine if someone special to you or someone dear to you gave you a gift. You would not throw it away. How much more so than if it's the gift of Christ himself? And then immediately I will always be careful not to get angry because then I am throwing away the gift of Christ. And once I have put this disposition firmly in my mind, I need to actually uh, carry on with the exercise in a way that Abba Theophan, the recluse, tells us. He says, the first thing you do in the morning is that after you have said your prayers, review in your mind all the situations that may arise that may lead you to lose your peace during that day. And he says, imagine the worst case scenarios that you can possibly imagine in your own mind and then ask yourself and say, what if this happens? Am I going to throw away the precious gift of Christ, of his peace? Or not and you will find then that the answer is an emphatic no because you do not want to lose this precious gift and then you will resolve in your mind that no matter how bad things get during the day that you will not be disturbed and your inner peace will not be taken away from you and the monks of the desert tell us that this works try it next time and see how much you are able to achieve in terms of results but the ultimate weapon I suppose Um, to be confirmed in a state of meekness and internal peace can only be reached if we follow through with even a further step. Listen to what the Gospel of St. Matthew tells us. Try to remember this, Matthew 5.44. Matthew 5.44. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So nothing confirms the peace of Christ in our heart like praying for those who hate you or want to hurt you. And again, believe me, it does work because God's words are not in vain. He, is not, uh, he does not tell us lies. His words are true and his words give life. And if you do this with zeal, then you are able to actually reach the level and the state of loving your enemy. Sometimes we find that commandment is very difficult. How can I love a person who wants to hurt me, a person who wants to um, uh, use me, a person who wants to abuse me, and so forth? But loving your enemy can only come through our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his commandments. And people who have taken this um, admonition seriously have actually been rewarding with everlasting peace. And nobody can ever take away the peace that they have in their heart. I came across this story that is incredible. It talks about a young man in Egypt who was in a very high position in a very large organization. And he was a Christian person. And being a Christian in Egypt can sometimes uh, be difficult, especially if you hold a high position in that regards. People look out for you and they want to get rid of you very quickly. And this young man um, who worked for a boss um, had a vice um, president of the company that was very fanatic and wanted to get rid of him because he was Christian. To the extent that he made it his goal to uh, do whatever he can to get rid of this Christian person. And for many years, he conspired to frame him in one way or another, to set him up with a crime to get rid of him. And many a time the police would come and investigate 
anonymous complaints that were made against this Christian person to only find that he's innocent of all the allegations. To the extent that one time even the police chief, who was not a Christian, he said to him, someone around here wants to really harm you. You need to be careful. Someone around here has put a, a bounty on your head to have you killed. So the police chief himself was warning this Christian person that he uh, needs to be careful. And throughout this ordeal, the young man kept praying for this vice president that was persecuting him. Every time he opened his Bible, he would find Matthew 5.44, which clearly reminded him, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So he continued on to pray. At first, he was praying for this man um, only by his lips, but not by heart. He felt obliged that he had to fulfill the commandment one way or another. But then as time went on, uh, he started to actually pray for this man with his whole heart. To the extent that one day he was called into the office by the president of the company, and he himself said to him, I know what you have been going through, and I have fired the vice president because of the persecution that uh, he has been making you face. And the man was so miserable. He was miserable. He did not rejoice at this. He did not think that this is actually a, a win for him. But he actually felt that this poor man was probably doing the will of God in his own mind. He didn't know any better. And he likened him in his prayers to Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He used to uh, take the Christians and put them to death, thinking that he is doing favor to God. As scripture tells us that, yes, the time is coming, that whoever kills you will think that they uh, that he offers God's service. So he started to pray for this man, and he felt so miserable that this man is out of a job. How will his family cope? How is he, will his children actually manage? And he kept praying for this man, even though he knew now that he had been fired from this company. Imagine this amazing level that a person can reach. This is a true uh, image of a meek person. But you too, my friend, can have this unshakable peace in your heart if you take seriously the command of Scripture and to exercise them diligently. Let me conclude uh, this segment on meekness uh, with some very beautiful words by St. John Climacus. He uh, gave this in the letter of Divine Ascent, and they sum up, I think, the whole virtue of meekness very well. This is what he says. He says, Meekness is a mind consistent among honor and dishonor. Meekness is a mind consistent among honor and dishonor. Meekness prays quietly and sincerely for the a neighbor, however troublesome they may be. Meekness is a rock looking out over the sea of anger, which breaks the waves that come crashing onto it and stays entirely unmoved. Meekness is a safeguard for patience. Meekness is the door. Indeed, meekness is the mother of love and the foundation of discernment. And it is meekness that earns pardon for our sins, gives confidence to our prayers, and makes a place for the Holy Spirit to dwell. Beautiful summary of what meekness is all about. And it's interesting that he actually uh, says that meekness also is the foundation of discernment, because that's our next um, 
next virtue that we will be discussing tonight or talking about discernment. Maybe we can take a couple of quick questions if you have any comments about meekness. If not, then we will continue on in the virtue of discernment. we can't say it's impossible because the Lord himself did it. You, you, you remember, for example, uh, when he was struck by the servant of the high priest, he said to him, why do you why do you strike me, friend? He called him friend. Why do you strike me, friend? And, and in his reply actually uh, shows us that when you when you are unmoved in that way, when you maintain your peace, you, you're actually um, sending a very clear uh, sermon and message to the person who is striking. You're almost bringing their anger down so that way you're able to communicate with them on a different level. There's nothing easier than a person to lose their control and to be angry back. But what will that make the other person do? Even become more angry. So even the Lord's reply shows us that we need to um, control that anger. And I think this is what the Lord meant when he said, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. I read a beautiful contemplation that this is to show the side that has not been hurt, the side that still has goodness in it. One side is, um, is, is ringing with hurt because it's been struck. The other side is still not hurt. So show him the, the good side, show him the, um, the unhurt side. So I suppose um, without the, the presence of Christ, there's no way I'm going to be able to achieve this. And maybe I can liken uh, the situation to what he was able to bear and to ask him for guidance and to help to be able to bear even a fraction of what he took upon himself. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. But definitely it is achievable um, only with the presence of Christ. Don't forget he is the Prince of Peace. So if he does not exist in my life, then definitely there's no way that I'm going to be able to... Um, um, to have this virtue of meekness. So, what's the relationship between a monk who stopped his fast and meekness? What, like, why did the bigger monk pull him up on it? The, the, the abbot slapped him uh, across the face to show the Syrian monks that no matter what insult I'm going to give this monk, that you think he's breaking his fast early, in your thinking, um, that he actually is not going to change his behavior and his, his countenance was still the same. So he still was giving out the bread without being affected by being slapped. Imagine an elderly monk being slapped in that harsh manner. So the abbot was teaching the Syrian monks and saying, um, no, we will teach you virtues that you have come to learn f from us, you know, because they were thinking, how could you break your fast earlier? So he says, no, 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 hang on. No, we, 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 you know, you came to learn, we will teach you. Yeah. <laughs> so, in a very wise way, I suppose. Uh, it, it brings to memory actually another beautiful story, um, again from the Paradise of the Fathers. That um, you know the story of Saint Arsenius. Saint Arsenius was the teacher of, of the uh, of the king's children, so he was a very um, learned and very high prominent person in society. And he gave all this up to actually go to the desert, 
and in his early uh, monastic life, it says that he used to pick out the nice beans out of the out of the food and put aside the bad ones. And then the abbot wanted to teach him an indirect uh, lesson, so he actually asked for forgiveness from another monk, and he said and he said to him, "Forgive me for for uh, what I will do for you at the refractory when we are eating next time." So he came up to this monk, innocent monk, as he was sitting there eating, and again struck him up upon the cheek. And he said, how dare you choose uh, good food for yourself and not others? And then Saint Arsenius put his hand on his cheek and said, this lap was for me, not for that other monk. So he learned, he knew that this was a lesson for him. So again, um, you know, I suppose um, the, the ideal the ideal is that for a meek person is that they learn from every situation. It's only the meek that can learn. And if we can't learn from the Lord, then who are we going to learn from? It will take years of practice, but you will get there. We'll all get there. Okay, the um, virtue of discernment. The virtue of discernment. Um, who does not want discernment in their life? To be able to know uh, right from wrong, good from evil, um, what the will of God is. Uh, to discern the spirits, whether the spirit is from from the Lord or the spirit is an evil spirit. And actually we are commanded to have this spirit of discernment when we are told by St. John in his epistle, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they, they are from God. And you remember Solomon the wise, when he became king, the Lord said to him, Whatever you request, it will be yours. So what did he request? He said to the Lord, he said, Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart <coughs> to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. And because he was asking for this virtue, the Lord gave him this virtue and everything else as well. One of the desert monks, St. Anthony the Great, he ranks discernment as the virtue that should be sought after more than any other virtue. Because he says if you attain any other virtue without discernment, then it's going to be prone to be lost. And when you think about it, it's true. If I don't have discernment, then any other virtue that I attain can be very easily lost. For example, the virtue that we spoke about last week, which is the virtue of chastity, Imagine if a person does not have discernment to be able to be uh, to choose what is coming his way as a as a fight from Satan, uh, and to discern whether this spirit is coming from Satan or from the Lord, then they might lose the virtue of chastity, the virtue of meekness. If I do not have the the virtue of discernment, then my meekness can be actually a human and earthly um, thing rather than a, a spiritual thing. So the virtue of discernment then is very important and that's why St. Anthony ranks it as the most important virtue to be sought after more than any other. Okay, what about this discerning of thoughts? We are bombarded by thoughts every minute of our life, every second of our life. And actually the fathers um, classify the thoughts into three uh, segments or three origins. They say, Thoughts can come from man himself, so they can come from within myself. Because we are told in Psalm 94, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. So thoughts can come from within myself. 
I bring thoughts upon myself. But thoughts can also be from God or from the Holy Spirit who abides in us. Because we are told in Matthew chapter 10, we are told, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So we can be given utterance by the Holy Spirit who abides in us. So that's the second origin of thoughts, that they can be from God. But all the thoughts can come from the devil. And again, we are told this clearly in Scripture. In the Gospel of St. John, we are told that um, after supper had ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, to betray Christ. The devil put it in the heart of, of Judas Iscariot to betray the Lord. So thoughts can come from Satan himself. And we are also told further in the book of Acts, when St. Peter said to Ananias, <coughs> he said to him, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? So Satan can put thoughts into the, uh, into the mind of man. So discerning then the origin of thought can be very difficult. Where is the thought coming from? Am I bringing this onto myself? Is it from the Lord? Is it from Satan? You know, and sometimes it can actually be one and the other very quickly. So it could be one thought coming from God to immediately be followed by another thought coming from Satan. So imagine that you need the discernment to be ongoing, to revise the thoughts ongoing. And we have an example of this as well in Scripture. Look at what the Gospel of St. Matthew chapter 16 says to us. It says, Simon Peter answered and said, he's answering the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. But the time came when the Lord started to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and be killed and be raised on the third day. So St. Peter took the Lord aside and began to rebuke the Lord and say, and say to him, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But the Lord turned to Simon um, Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. For you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. St. Peter had the two thoughts, one after the other. You are the, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately uh, he says to him, Far be it that you should suffer and be put to death and, you know, and suffer at the hands of the elders. And the Lord says to him, Get behind me, Satan. Of course, here is not referring to St. Peter as Satan, but he's saying the thought that's come to you is from Satan. Okay, Don't, don't think that the Lord is calling St. Peter Satan, but he's saying the thought is a satanic thought. We should not think like that. In St. Peter's mind, a thought from God was quickly followed by a thought from Satan. He was unable to discern the thoughts at that stage because he had not yet received the Holy Spirit. See, the, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in us will give us the spirit of discernment. And although the Bible exhorts us to test the spirits whether they are from God or not, 
we are not given an exact method of how to discern these thoughts. Again, we need to turn to the Desert Fathers and seek their experience in order to know how to discern the thoughts. And this is a summary of what they say to us. They say, examine the thought to see if it is filled with the fear of God. So this is one of the conditions. Discover, uh, examine the thought to discover and to see whether it's filled with the fear of God. And then ask yourself and say, is it filled with goodness towards everyone? Is the thought filled with goodness towards everyone? Ask yourself also and say, does it agree with the witness and actions of the Lord and the Apostles and Scripture? This is a pretty hard thought process when you think about it. For every thought I have to ask these questions. Now say, even further, ask yourself and say, does the thought evoke peace and tranquility? Or is it surrounded by anger, bitterness and turmoil? Because the Desert Fathers say that the most pious thoughts should be distrusted if they deprive us of our inner peace. The most pious thoughts should be distrusted. You should not trust even if it's the most pious of thoughts if they deprive us of our inner peace. So many a time we are led to believe that we are being moved by the zeal of the Lord when we are actually um, succumbing to anger or condemnation uh, and, and things like that. So we have to be very careful how we discern the thoughts. And this can happen time and time again without relenting because these thoughts are unrelenting. Listen to this beautiful scripture um, segment. It's an example of how God speaks to us and how we should discern uh, what these thoughts are like. It's from the segment of 1 Kings chapter 19, 2 verses 11 and 12. God wanted to talk to Elijah the prophet. So we are told in this segment of scripture that a great and a strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Still, small voice. The voice of the Lord is a still, small voice. You see, a thought that is surrounded by feelings of pride and stubbornness or selfishness or even confusion and um, anxiety and no peace and so forth is certainly not from God. Thoughts that are from God fill us with serenity and with joy and even with humility. The fifth question that I need to ask myself, do you want me to quickly tell you the four questions again that the fathers asked us to, um, to ask ourselves? Examine the thought to see if it is filled with the fear of God. Is it filled with goodness towards everyone? Does it agree with the witness and actions of the Lord and the Scripture and the Apostles? Um, does the thought evoke peace and tranquility or is it surrounded by anger, bitterness and turmoil? And the fifth question is, does the thought come with a sense of urgency about it? Does the thought come with a sense of urgency about it? Do you feel compelled to do it right away? You want to just throw yourself in there and do it straight away? If so, then be very careful for most properly 
that it's actually from uh, Satan or the tempter rather than from God. Because stirrings of the Holy Spirit will come to the soul gradually and gently and not impulsively. They, they convince a person and the person thinks and meditates and takes time in order to, uh, to find the right uh, result. You know, St. Macarius the Great, one time he had a thought to go and visit the monks in the surrounding area. He kept this thought and examined it for two years before he acted on it. He kept this thought for two years, examining this thought just to make sure that it's not from the devil, that it's actually from God. If we, if we give every thought two years, <laughs> I think it's going to be a very long process. <laughs> So you may, you may do all these steps that we've spoken about or the Desert Fathers tell us, but still the devil can trick you and fool you. So the most important test of whether the thought is coming to you is to actually reveal your thoughts to your Confession Father, no matter how small you think the thoughts are. And the Fathers value this more than anything else uh, in discerning the thoughts. For example, again, the great Saint Macarius used to reveal his thoughts to Mother Sarah, one of the desert mothers. And St. Moses the Black used to reveal his thoughts to his disciple by the name of Zacharias, who was only 18 years old, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit. When you, um, when you don't trust in your own thoughts and you reveal your thoughts to another, then literally two heads are better than one. When you think together and you pray together and you share that thought with another person, then it makes things so much easier. I always say to couples when they're being married and we crown them with the crowns and we put their heads together, I say this is actually symbolic of both of you becoming the one thought. Both heads thinking together to become the one thought. No head is above another. No thought is above another. Don't belittle the thought of the other. But actually think together and discuss together because when you do that, you, you disallow Satan room to work amongst us. See, when we think together, because we are both on the same journey and we're helping each other on the same journey, then things can become very easy, uh, much more easier. Okay, well, what about then discerning the will of God? And we all question that. We want to know what the will of God in our lives is. Because sometimes we might get into a situation where we are, we are unable to take a decision easily. <clears throat> For example, you might be accepted into two different universities. To do different courses. What do you what do you choose? One might be uh, in your local city or hometown. The other might be uh, out of town or, or interstate or overseas. What do you do? Or you have a job and then you get another uh, offer for another job that's interstate or overseas. Um, what do you do? I think in these situations, um, it is when we really then want to know the will of God, and we seek the will of God. And knowing the will of God can be extremely, extremely difficult. But look at how the fathers used to deal with it. And if we follow their methods, I think it will become much easier. But before we get into the process that the fathers used, let me just uh, ask um, a quick question and maybe answer it with you. Why is it important for me to know the will of God? You see, if I don't think it's important, then I'm not going to seek the will of God. So why is the will of God important? The will of God is important because Saint, uh, Paul in his epistle to the Romans sums it up very nicely. He says, the will of God is good 
acceptable and perfect. Who does not want, um, you know, uh, good, acceptable and perfection? So that's what the will of God, good, acceptable and perfect. The will of God is perfect, it lacks nothing. So it's good for me and it's satisfying my spiritual, physical, psychological, emotional needs because it's, it's acceptable, it's good and it's perfect. And God knows the future much more so than what I know for myself. My own will, on the other hand, is anything but perfect. How many times have we wanted certain things for ourselves, yet to later find that they are not suitable for us? How many times, for example, particularly uh, for younger people or people that are still spiritually not um, mature, to have thought of things that they would make them happy, yet to find that these things are actually um, in vain. They're not really helpful at all. So if I wanted to consider what was uh, good for me long term, I might not, uh, I should not then rely on my own will, which is imperfect, but I should rely on the will of God. So that's why the will of God is important. So again, let's come back to this question, how can I know the will of God? Saint Theophan, the recluse, he tells us that in order for God to reveal his good, acceptable and perfect will to me, I have to renounce my own self-will. That's the first important step. I have to renounce my own will. So it's no longer my will, but your will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even the Lord himself, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to God the Father, he said, Let it be thy will, not my will. So he was submitting even to the will of God the Father. And sometimes we ask God to reveal his will, but we've already made up our mind on the inside of what we want. Lord, this is what I want. And I hope that it's your will. <laughs> I'm almost forcing God to say, okay, there you go, here, here it is, because this is what you want. And if we act in this way, then God will not reveal his will to us, because God is not going to force us to do one thing or another. He will not force his will upon us. We must accept it willingly and without our own self-will coming into the Christian. Look at how St. Theophan, the recluse, gives us this beautiful parable uh, or analogy about this. He says that if you have a glass full of vinegar and you want to put honey into this glass, you first must throw away the vinegar. Then you must wash the glass, put it out in the sun for a few hours until the smell of the vinegar disappears, then you can put the honey into it. And he says that the vinegar here is our own will. Selfish sometimes, short-sighted sometimes. It is unlike the will of God. It's not perfect, it's not good, it's not acceptable. But the honey is the will of God. So think of it that you're replacing your will with God's will. In other words, you, it's chalk and cheese. <laughs> it's a huge difference. Okay, If you think your will is good for yourself, wow. If you can only just see what the will of God is for you, it will be so much more precious. So unless we bury our own self-will, then God will not reveal his will to us. Because we will actually be mocking God by asking him to reveal his will while our own will has already been made up. And that can't work. If I really want to know the will of God, I must put my self-will um, to stop before I can see the will of God. So how can I really do this then? There's an exercise that the fathers called um, neutralization of my will to neutralize your will. And the theory is this, 
I will always have a bias either for or against anything that I'm considering because we are human. We all have this. For example, if I get a, a, an offer for a job that might give me more money, I might have a bias towards this job um, and I might become blind to any other aspect because I want more money. Okay? Or I might uh, face a situation where I'm asked to accept something that I don't like and that makes me overlook uh, the many good features of that thing. And you know, all these likes and dislikes, I suppose, are actually uh, based on first impressions for us as humans. So I must then put my will uh, to become neutralized before I can see the will of God. Let me give you an example. Imagine you've been accepted into a good university in your hometown. And you have an offer from another university that is far from home. This is more suited maybe to younger people. The, the lure of freedom plays plays a big role here, doesn't it? Wow, no more mum and dad. <laughs> no more, uh, have you studied, uh, you're late for college. You know. So the lure of freedom here overrides everything else. You know, And there might be so many other factors that they're not thinking about because this, this beautiful freedom is at arm's length. They're about to grab this freedom, okay? And there might be many other negative aspects that are far, uh, far from their, th from their thought, from their thoughts. Whether it's this example or other, I need to balance this, the thoughts by saying to myself and thinking out aloud and say, "Well, what about my family and friends? What about my church? What about important things to me like um, my confession father that he is available that I can go and see him anytime I need." in my hometown, and so on. And when a person starts to think of all the aspects, then I think the thought process becomes so much easier. But to do that, a person must neutralize their own will in order to be able to think like that. You know. But if you see something that you really want, most of the time we are blinded to everything else, and that's what I want. But that's wrong. And of course, these negative aspects uh, are true. Um, but you were ignoring them because you wanted this freedom or you wanted this thing that looks so good without the proper scrutiny. And that's why it's important to neutralize our will. The same can also be applied uh, for any other situation, whether it be a job or any other matter. I need to look at the whole scenario as if to say, I have no say in this. All possibilities are possible for me. I will not take a decision at this stage till I've thought this out through well and good. And it's the same even when it comes to marriage. Can you imagine that I've had people who have been married for 10 or 15 years and they say to me, the only reason I married was to get out of my parents' home. Can you imagine that? How sad is that? They say, the only reason I married was because I wanted to leave home. And I say, that's disastrous when you think about it. They didn't think of any other aspect at all except to have that freedom. And of course, you can imagine what consequences come from that. So the second step then after I've neutralized my will is to go to my father in confession and to ask him and to pray with him and to pray together that God may reveal his uh, good, perfect and acceptable will. This act of submitting ourselves to our Father in confession is actually an act of humility. It's actually a very necessary prerequisite for God to reveal His will to us. 
because you're getting somebody to pray with you. Imagine that there's more than one person praying about a particular issue, then definitely God's will can be revealed in that regards. If you feel afraid that God may choose an option for you that is not in your favor, then you have not done your homework properly. You get what I'm saying here? Imagine that you're upset with what God has chosen for you. You have not neutralized your will. <laughs> your will is still in play here. <laughs> your will still wants to override God's will. And if you go to your confession father and you ask him um, to pray with you about a particular issue, but subconsciously you have already chosen one option over the other, again, you're not being fair. You have not done your homework well. I need to neutralize. Neutralization here means that there's absolutely no favor towards one thing or another. And that could be so hard. That could be so difficult. Okay? It may be well that God will actually choose the option for you that you have favored for yourself. And that's fine. But the beauty about doing this exercise is that every time you are faced with the same situation, then you go back and you use the same routine. And it means then you are saying to God, Lord, I don't want to have any say in this. I want it to be your say. Easier said than done. Remember that. Easier said than done. And it will be very easy for you then not to think about what you want to do, but rather what God is choosing for you to do. These are some words, uh, I mean, th there are some words of caution that we have to be careful. Don't try to cheat when you are thinking this process through. Okay? Don't say, Lord, yes, I'm definitely going to submit to your will, only just to be hurt and to feel like, why is God doing this to me? It doesn't work like that. So ask then God to really reveal to you what he wants to do. When you accept the will of God in that regards, in the most difficult of circumstances, then you will find the most inner peace that you have ever experienced. Imagine that some people can accept uh, the will of God in certain aspects of their life, but not other things. For example, I had a young woman one time who said that, that she will accept the will of God in anything except for marriage. And when I asked why marriage, she said, because this is my personal choice. I don't want God to choose for me. I want to choose. I said, but God can choose for you actually what is for, you, for your good much better than what you will choose for yourself. And she said something very strange. She said, I don't want a boring Sunday school teacher or a deacon that is not going to be fun. I said, yes, but God can choose for you a deacon or a servant who's also fun to live with. <laughs> you know, why are you uh, cutting God short like that? You know, God can actually choose for you so much more than you think for yourself. Another young man who came to attend a, a retreat with us one time, he, he said to me that... Um, when it comes to marriage, I want to be the master of my own destiny. But then one of the servants that was there answered and said a very nice reply. He said, if you ignore the will of God in the process of choosing your partner and your spouse, you will become the master of your own disaster, not the master of your own destiny. You'll become the master of your own disaster. And that is very true. See, if we keep God out of, um, out of choices that we make, then definitely um, we're looking for trouble. It's almost like a person who's in a boat and they need to do some hard work, but they also need to give the rudder 
to the control of Christ. And to say to him, Lord, you direct where the boat go. I will do my part by rowing, but you direct then um, where we should head. But unfortunately, unfortunately, many times we insist on holding the rudder ourselves and we want God to do the rowing. We want him to do the hard yards and then to make the final decision for us. It should not work like that. Definitely one benefit of accepting the will of God um, as your preferred option is that uh, whatever comes your way or whatever God allows to come your way, you will have no fear because it is his choice. And to know that God has willed this for me gives that inner uh, comfort and inner peace that you are living under his guidance and under his direction. Again, let me conclude with the words of St. John Cassian in his uh, work on the conferences about this uh, spirit of discernment or the virtue of discernment. He says, We will most easily come to a precise knowledge of true discernment if we follow the paths of our elders. If we do nothing new and if we do not presume to decide anything on the basis of our own private judgment, Instead, let us in all things travel the, ro the road laid down for us by the tradition of our elders and by the goodness of their lives. Strengthened by this routine, a person will not only reach the summit of, of discernment, but will remain completely safe from all the snares of the enemy. Summed up, he's saying, don't live by your own will, but submit to the will of another. In submission, in submission to the will of my confession, Father, I'm actually submitting to God because the, the concept of submission will be very hard for me to submit to God if I do not submit to a fellow human being. Is it any wonder then that we ask the groom and the bride to submit to one another in love and purity? Because if they don't submit to one another, how can they submit to God? You see, so I need then to um, have this submission in order to live this virtue of discernment. Easy? Just don't take two years to uh, for, for every thought to discern. Glory be to our God now and forevermore. Amen. If you have any comments or any uh, uh, quick uh, points, happy to, to discuss a bit further. Just a little bit. <laughs> You're doing amazingly well. <laughs> yeah. I don't think God minds that we have a preference. He knows that we're human and we have preferences. But I think it's a different thing totally when we enforce that preference in our prayers on God. You know what I mean? So, for example, um, I've got two options. I'm leaning towards one option more than another. And by the way, if, if the options are both within the framework of God, there's nothing wrong with me choosing as well. Okay? Because God gives us a framework to work within. God is not does not want to control us with a remote control just to, you know, 
for the sake of him being God and we being his, um, you know, creation. Now, if we're if it's within the framework of God that he has set for me, he does give me freedom of choice as well, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in important um, matters of life, if I enforce my will upon God, he will allow it to go through. But then I, I suffer the consequences. So there's nothing wrong with having a preference, but I should not enforce that preference upon God. But to say, Lord, if it's not your will, then take away this thought from me. You know? And if it is your will, then give me signs of blessings along the way to make me comfortable about this. Says, is that what is that what I want, or is that what I value? Oh. There's two. There's two ways to look at it. I'm just thinking about what you said. So, but I want a beautiful wife. Who do I want to marry to my children? Mm. So I think if you ask yourself, is that what I want? Because usually we're very, very good. We want what we want. We want a job. We want this. We want that. But is that what we really value? Yeah. So what do we really value in life? It's, it's something that kind of I kind of I just heard recently, but it kind of relates. So yeah. If I ask myself those two questions, you can try to. Absolutely. What I want and what I value. And there's a huge difference, isn't it? It's not a sermon I was hearing, but it kind of clicked Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you.